You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences through weekly topics, expert interviews, and guided mindfulness meditations. Mindfulness is presence, awareness, It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity. Perhaps most importantly in today's uncertain world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate toward ourselves as well as others. I sat down recently with Dr. Sandra Parker a clinical psychologist and author of the new book, Embracing Unrest, Harness Vulnerability to Tame Anxiety and Spark Growth. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Parker has helped people recognize and soothe unrest to resolve anxiety, depression, and loss of intimacy. Her practice integrates ideas from developmental psychology, neurobiology, psychodynamic therapy, experiential processes, and mindfulness practices. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me and having me here. It's a real honor to have this opportunity to speak with your audience and with you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. I really enjoyed the book. In the introduction of the book, you define unrest, and I thought that might be a good place to start. If you could share with our listeners what you mean by unrest, since it's pretty important to what we're going to be talking about today. Absolutely. Um, And it's precious to me. And it is a precious alarm inside all of us meant to wake us up at the optimal moment for growth. Unrest is nervous system activation uh, that rises when we are vulnerable. And it's a signal inviting us to tune in so we can soothe our bodies, feel emotion, and grow capacities for living our biggest, richest lives. It's a tricky little thing, that unrest, because it works two ways. It's a call to come home. It's a wake-up call. But if we don't perceive it accurately, it doesn't work as a wake-up call. It feels like threat. And then we're ejected from our inner lives. Well, I know we're going to talk a lot more about that, what you just said as we go along today. But I wanted to tell you how much I appreciated the case studies that you included and the exercises that you included. And also that you you made it clear that just reading a book is not going to change your experience, right? We have to do something. So I I do want to say at the very beginning here, as we talk about this, it's really important to people that are seeking change that they practice the exercises and stay aware beyond just reading the words and pay attention to their habitual behaviors, which you talk about in the book. So one of the things that you say in the book, speaking of change, 
is that what's important for growth is consistency, not constancy. So can you share why that's important? Well, I think constancy hits a a note in us that's perfectionistic. And the moment I have to do it all the time and perfectly, I'm already on the road to failure. So consistent is possible. And even in the instances where I don't approach this discomfort, where I do really what is so human and wired in us, which is to move away from what doesn't feel good, I'm still worthy. I'm still lovable. This isn't a test of our worth. It's really a quality of life issue. And so even in the misses, there's this fantastic opportunity to notice, well, what does that feel like when I leave home, when I exit my experience, as opposed to when I stay with myself, when I don't feel good, when I'm disrupted, when there's this discomfort, and discover that although it doesn't feel good, I'm still worth caring for. Those experiences are really different. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. When you're told you have to do something constantly, you know, then it feels like, I don't know, an obligation or a chore instead of doing something out of love for yourself and just doing it consistently as the experiences rise up. So I totally agree with that. So along those lines, a lot of the book is really about vulnerability. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about why you think we avoid our experiences that make us vulnerable. Wow. Well, vulnerability is this amazing humanness of us, which is the gap between what we long for and what we can 100% secure based on our own efforts and gifts and talents and intentions. And there's always a gap. My fingers are outstretched to the absolute limit of what I can do. And something outside me needs to contribute to that outcome. And that that it, longing and limits is so central to the human condition. We're born with this gorgeous desire. We come into life wanting things and it's motivating us and it's driving us. If I didn't have that longing, I would never get out of my cradle. I wouldn't crawl and reach for that, that dolly. I'd still be 40 and expecting my mom to bring me a bottle. You know, my longing is what drove me to write a book. So it's beautiful. However, there's this reality, which is that everything we long for is contributed to by forces outside of us. And that's sometimes hard to see because you think, well, I picked this shirt that I'm wearing today. Well, yes. And no, if it slipped off the hanger overnight and Harry, who's now almost 15, my lovely Pekingese Yorkie cross, you know, accidentally peed on it, um, I wouldn't be wearing this shirt. So, I mean, I may not think about these forces. And a lot of the time, thank goodness, the universe obliges me. I can have the fantasy that, yeah, I nailed that. But the reality is different. And vulnerability is really a fact of life. We are alive, we're going to die. That's the bare minimum. And then there's a bajillion other factors, time, the economy, DNA, other people, and oh my goodness, our emotions are impacting us. So, um, but it's more than a fact of life. It's also a physical feeling and that's unrest. That, That fact of life becomes a feeling in a particular moment and it goes from being abstract. I mean, again, to bring up my darling Harry, At 15, I know he doesn't have a lot more years. That's a fact, and I know that, and most of the time it's in the background. But the other day when he was going up the stairs and his hind legs were a bit frail and I had to give him a hand, all of a sudden it went from being an abstract fact to a physical feeling of unrest in my body signaling emotions underneath. Mm 
So that's that's what vulnerability is. It's this fact of life that in certain moments becomes immediate and personal. Those are the moments to, to tune in and feel so we can grow. But unfortunately, that's often the moment when we escape ourselves. Yeah. And it, it leads kind of into my next question because it seems like life would be a lot easier if we didn't have emotions, right? It seems that that's what complicates everything. Um, but are emotions really good or bad? Well, of course, when we're speaking about core emotions, so I'm a bit particular, right? I'm a psychodynamically trained psychotherapist. So um, I'm speaking about core emotion, which is the, the true feeling that's moving us, not a defensive emotion. Defensive emotions are things that come up based on stories or narratives, and those things are based on lies. So those aren't real feelings, but the feelings that arise from bumping into reality, those feelings are all adaptive. And what I mean by that is they want to help us come to terms with reality. That is job one for all of us. We might know that reality is what it is, but we don't like it. And because of that, the emotions want to help us do the hard slog of coming to terms with the truth. So emotion is always adaptive if we're able to feel it. And I want to say this piece really clearly in a well-regulated way. Emotion that's contaminated with elevated levels of anxiety in the body becomes overwhelmed and it's too much and it isn't actually healthy, but it's not the emotion that's the problem. It's the dysregulated anxiety. Really good point. There are a couple here I want to talk about further identifying the differences between what we might be experiencing. So one area that you talk about in the book is the difference between unrest and anxiety or fear. So how do we know if we're experiencing unrest or if it's anxiety or fear? I love that question so much. I love it because psychologists are still in rather a big argument about that and about 7,500 other things. <laughs> um, we just don't agree on anything. So, But this is in my experience, okay? And I've been working for 30 years, beginning many years ago with people with panic attacks. But this experience of vulnerability in the body, anxiety and fear, this, this differentiation is close to my heart. I want to start with fear because referring to emotion a moment ago, fear is adaptive. Like grief wants to help me come to terms with loss and anger wants me to have a voice and stand up and push back against wrongs. And fear wants to help me stay alive. It's a very healthy response. But I want you to hear the word alive loud and clear because it's only relevant when there's an in the moment threat to life and limb. And at that point, this arousal in your body, the extra oxygen to your large muscles and the deeper breathing and the increased heart rate is a perfect match for a physical threat in the moment. If what is facing you is an abstract thought, an emotion, a story, something in the past, something possible in the future, it's not fear, all right? It's only fear if there is, let's say, you have a, a, a rattlesnake hissing on your desk, it's very appropriate to throw that rattlesnake off your desk and all the arousal goes perfectly with that. But if your computer is jamming up and freezing and losing things, throwing your computer off the desk is not really functional. So although the physical feeling is the same, it's very important that we understand if the threat is anything other than in the moment and physical, it's not fear. And what I want to say about fear is, oh my heavens, obey you know, run, right? Now, anxiety is a different critter. Anxiety is stories. It's like the narrative about 
something that feels threatening to us. And we don't feel anxious when we're afraid. We feel afraid. So that's a pretty clear situation. There's an oncoming bus and you jump. You're not really worrying, right? But what happens for many of us is when we are vulnerable and unrest stirs, and I should have made this point at the beginning, unrest, anxiety, and fear all come through the same circuitry. So physiologically, it's not going to be the way you'll distinguish these things. They are identical. You can't tell the difference. In fact, I'll add a fourth one just for fun, which is excitement on a roller coaster feels the same. So there's lots of things that feel the same. So the physiology won't be the way you'll tell the difference. But unrest rises, as I mentioned, when you're confronted with limits to something that really matters to you. And when that signals you, a lot of the time, we don't register it consciously. We unconsciously misread this invitation to come home as danger. And we want to make sense of why we feel that way. We're meaning-making creatures. We want to understand. And so we start telling stories. You know, this bump on my arm means I'm going to get cancer. This ringing in my ears means I'm not going to be able to cope and I'm going to go crazy. You know, the fact that I can't stop my alcoholic brother from drinking means that, you know, he's going to get into a car accident and it'll be my fault. I mean, oh my heavens, the stories go on and on. And with anxiety, it's really important to realize that we're making it up. We're either making it up or we're possibly remembering something from before. But none of that, none of that is this moment. And right in this moment, the animal of your body needs to know that because otherwise it won't settle and you won't access these resources that want to help you come to terms with your limits, that want to help you adapt. So what I say is obey fear, block the anxiety stories, and feel and soothe your unrest. Oh, excellent. Now, I like that. And I liked that you used, I think it's out of the Buddhist teaching about anxiety being the second arrow. We teach that in our workshops. It's like, okay, something happens, but there's that choice. You know what I mean? To be aware enough to realize. But I, I think it's very interesting that you point out, we can't tell physiologically. I use a lot of times because I'm in LA, the 405 freeway, which doesn't move, right? So everyone gets very anxious and starts telling themselves stories about either all the other people, you know, how terrible they are or about how they're you know going to lose their job or you know, all these stories that build up so much anxiety, which is the second era, right? The first era is, okay, you're stuck in traffic. The second one is now you're creating these stories that are greatly intensifying what's happening to you physiologically. So, but I appreciate that explanation because that's very clear. Of course, in mindfulness, you know, we do teach all the time that judgment is you know, the source of a lot of our um, misery and suffering, but it's really about awareness, right? Understanding, like, are you really in danger in this moment or is this a story you're making up in your head? And so I think that that really clarified that for us. Thank you. And I do want to say how human all this is, you know, that, that because we want to make sense and we don't understand unrest, I mean, we're just doing our best trying to understand this arousal in our bodies. And so if I'm on the 405, you know, and I'm stuck there, it's not just, I'm not making up the stories, I don't know, because I'm a bad dude or because I'm having fun with this. It's, it's that I need to understand why I feel so threatened. And so these stories help me understand myself. But the fact is underneath that, there will be pain. It, it may seem small, but our life is made up with these pains. So that the first pain would be some anger at how frustrating this is. And we may not want to feel that. Underneath that, there would be some sadness that this isn't the way I would want it to be. And that's a tough place to hang out. 
that that place of I can't, you know, I can't move this traffic, I can't change the clock, I can't move time or cars so that I can get where I want to go. And that is actually painful. And back to the Buddhist second arrow, it's pain or suffering, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the pain of the truth of reality and limits and longing or everything we do to not feel the pain, which is the suffering. Or in my world, we call it defenses. Yeah. And we're going to get to that too in the defenses, because I think that's really important. What is interoception and how can that help us navigate unrest? Well, it's your perception tool for your inner self. So we normally think of our uh, senses as the ones perceiving the outside world. So sight and hearing, touch, taste, um, smell, those external ones. But we have two internal ones. One is proprioception, which tells us where we are in space so that um, you can uh, get a fork to your mouth and it doesn't go to your forehead. Um, or, uh, you know, when you've been drinking and the police are going to stop you and you have to touch your nose with your eyes closed. Uh, very hard to do with alcohol because that part of the brain kind of shuts down. So proprioception is a sense of yourself in space. Interoception is a sense of your inner world, your inner physiology. So hunger and thirst and the body temperature. But importantly for unrest, it's also this muscle tension and agitation under the skin. It's your ability to perceive that accurately. And people vary on that. The the lovely thing about it is it's one of those things that improves with practice. The more you pay attention to these inner sensations, the more nuanced and precise you can be, and even the more language you can begin to develop to have a, a kind of an internal vocabulary for your experience. And one little thing I want to say is that if you think about the way the nervous system works, this is a cool fact if you're a geek for internal, you know, sort of physiology stuff. But our vagus nerve has 80% of its mechanoreceptors are actually afferent, which means coming up from the body to the brain. So they're the body talking to you. And then only 20% are efferent. So your, your command, like uh, lift that glass of water or step over that dog on the floor. So if you think about it, your body is talking to you 80% of the time. It behooves us to listen. Yeah. And we ignore what our bodies are telling us. We flat out ignore it or we deny it or we postpone it. I mean, that's a big one, especially for all of us sitting at computers. Our body starts telling us the minute that there's something wrong, we need to get up. We need to move. We need to do, do, it's telling us. And we go, I can't right now. And so I agree, we need to listen to our body and act, accept the signal. It's almost like a signal. It's not always physical. It could be emotional too, right? But it's telling us something. And uh, I don't think we're conditioned enough to do that. As soon as the pandemic hit and the shutdowns happened and all of that, I think a lot of people went into survival mode, understandably. And I think they're having a hard time, some of them, getting out of that. And you talk about survival versus growth. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think the impact is from kind of getting stuck in that survival mode and not kind of bouncing back out so that we can grow and learn again. Beautiful, beautiful, timely question. I feel when I look at what happened with COVID, uh, and there's so many things that happened with COVID, with this more narrow sort of vision right now to look at it in terms of our uh, reluctance to come out of our little caves. I feel the pandemic revealed 
something to us. It didn't cause it. I think there's a lot of talk about how the pandemic created anxiety, created these reactions. I don't think so. I think the pandemic revealed our habitual relationship to vulnerability. And interesting you say survival, because there were people in survival situations in hospitals, but the vast majority of us, it was a potential. It was a possibility. And to be in survival mode when it's not a survival threat goes back to this issue of the stories we tell ourselves. And again, if we can understand that those stories are creating suffering for us, there's a pathway then to prioritize soothing the nervous system right now, right now in this room. Do I have enough oxygen? I am breathing. I am, there is shelter. Obviously, there are situations where it is survival, right? But when it's not, and we are in this um, hunkered down place, but if we're living like that, and it's an abstract threat, a possibility, we aren't accessing these adaptive emotions that want to help us come to terms with uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like uh, not having control. And there are emotions that want to help us come to terms with that. And as long as we stay in this kind of argument with reality that there should be a way that I can get the answer, and I'm mad at everybody who doesn't tell me exactly what I need to do in order to be safe here, if I don't get out of that mindset, I really am trapped. But it's not a physical cave. It's a cave in my own mind that I, I'm creating. It's as though we create this misery for ourselves to avoid feeling the pain of the truth. And COVID really revealed our relationship to ourselves when we're vulnerable, I feel. It was a, it's an opportunity for us to really use this, I think, as a lens. You know, one of the things, even in conversations I'm still having with people, and that I see this, is we've never had certainty, right? Life is always uncertain. But that whole experience sort of popped people out of maybe an illusion of control and certainty. And now they want it back, but it didn't exist to begin with. And so I feel like I'm going in circles sometimes. It's like, that's not the approach that's probably going to be the most helpful, but it's also understandable because again, it goes back to that fear. And now I've I've got to think about the unrest part. I really found the book so interesting because I've never thought of it in those terms, but I do think that you're right. We can't grow. You can't really do much of anything if you're just in survival mode, right? I mean, you can survive. That's the whole point, but I think it's really challenging for people right now to even think about changing too much or they're going the other extreme and changing everything. So it's a very interesting time to be observing human behavior. But I also thought it was interesting because we are talking about change. You're either changing, go back to whatever normal is, or you're not changing and you're going to stay in that cocoon or, you know, whichever, whichever path you're taking. But you said in the book, something along the lines of change, not being growth. I think you said change is an alteration, but not necessarily maturation. And -hmm. I thought that was really interesting because usually I'm guilty of this too. I think in terms of you're changing because you're growing, but can you talk a little bit about how that's not always the case? Well, I think of growth as organic uh, emergence and blossoming of capacities that are inherent in us, the way an oak tree is already in an acorn. Um, There's a, a hunger I think we're born with to become all that our deepest self wants to become, to manifest that. 
And so I don't think we can do anything about that. I think we're actually wired with that longing to become, if you will, uh, which is different from change. Change is, as you say, it's like a shift in a way of looking at things or learning something. I, I can know where Lima, Peru is. I can learn that in a moment. But growth is, it takes time. It takes this uh, experiencing this, my insight, my insight can be, can help me make change in the sense that I can see something differently, but insights like a light that shines itself on a path, but then I've got to put my boots on and walk. And that's the experiences, the practices, the, the feelings in the body that I hold in my reflective mind and iterating through that again and again until neural pathways are woven together. And it goes from being a little pathway with a lot of underbrush to a road, to a highway, to a superhighway eventually. Fascinating. Well, speaking of this, because you brought this up several times and it is so important. Again, just even like I was saying, we tend to be so much in our heads. We're not always paying attention to our bodies, but what are some ways we can pay more attention to our bodies since it's so important to this process? I loved earlier, you mentioned when something rises, it was a, a just, you just sort of said it as part of something, but I loved it because there was a sense of being in some awareness of the inner flow. Sometimes people will say, well, shouldn't I just set a little timer on my Apple watch to remind me to check in? And it's like, would you check in on your baby based on your Apple watch? Or would you listen to the sound of your baby's voice in the next room? So when you mentioned that, it's like, yeah, so what I would invite listeners to do, maybe even right now or right after the show, is to think about what is something you long for? What is something that you want? And I do want to say we only have two problems, Teresa. We have that we want something. We want something to be a certain way. And so we want something to change, if you will. We want something to be different. And we want it preferably now. And we can't make that happen right? Most of the time, as I say, there are factors contributing, right? So we have to wait, it's in a certain timing. So there's that piece of it. The opposite is we do want something and we love it. We love it, that beautiful Thanksgiving dinner and we're all sitting together and the lighting and the fireplace and the music and this connection with everyone. And I never, never, never want it to end. And guess what? It's already slipping away, right? At the peak of that moment of joy, it's already changing. So we have this, this vulnerability just in the flow of our experience. And so I'm just going to invite people to think about what's something that you long for that you can't 100% control. And even just something small, like I want to have a good night's sleep tonight, um, or I don't know, I want to lose 10 pounds, or I want uh, that person to approve of me. I want you know, my kids to be happy. Let yourself actually feel that longing for a moment. Feel how it pulls you in your chest. Feel how it kind of calls you forward. And then at the same time as you're feeling that, let yourself be in touch with at least one thing, but maybe as many as three that could get in the way of that outcome happening. So right away, you're confronted with the immediate and personal experience of your limits to control. And you can't ensure 100% that you can make it happen. And then in that moment, as something rises, can you notice muscle tension in your body? Feel where there's tension. Be as precise as you can about tuning into that. And notice if you're holding your breath. Notice if there's a quiver of agitation under your skin. Notice anything you can about what that bracing feels like, because you're bracing against the truth right now. You're bracing against reality. And if you can stay there, 
and feel in a loving way with warm interest and non-judgment. Welcome it. This is incredibly radical, bold. You're going towards something that doesn't feel good and you are hanging out there with love. Beautiful and so mindful. Everything kept resonating with me because this is part of what mindfulness is, right? It's being so in tune and in touch with what's happening and experiencing whatever it is, even if it's uncomfortable, which is challenging. I mean, in fairness, I understand it's challenging for people, but I love that exercise because you could try it with something maybe small that's not you know, super critical to you so that you can ease into it a little bit if you're nervous about it, but you're not really in danger. Nothing terrible is going to happen. It's just our natural aversion to that discomfort that causes us to keep trying to look away, right? Absolutely. You talk about inspiring change and about how much a well-regulated presence makes the difference. And you give examples for teachers and healthcare workers, business leaders, but you also talk about the importance for all of us, right? Because we're all individually leaders to someone. And that this does help set the example and help people understand this better and spread it. And that being regulated I don't want to say it's contagious, that's inaccurate, but you know what I mean. It's if you're well-regulated, it opens the door wider to other people to become more regulated. I think that's so true and so beautiful and so important to understand because in the face of all these large abstract threats, climate change, nuclear threat, the rise of totalitarianism, so many things we can't do anything about, to realize that to be that tuning fork in the room, I mean, I do think it's contagious. When we feel this, we have this these mirror neurons in our brains that pick up and read another person's state without any effort on our part. And I mean, for sure, no question about it. Fear is more contagious than being this kind of well-regulated person. Fear is survival. So, right, it's it's absolutely yeah. going to have more um, viral load. <laughs> it is contagious that when I can regulate myself, if I'm the one dropping my shoulders, if I'm the one with the exhaled breath, I make the good eye contact and lean in. There is a vibration like a tuning fork that comes off of me that can shift the energy in the people around me and convey a message of safety. You know, this is difficult. This is hard. This is painful, but it's not danger. And that changes everything. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing what happens. I, and I've been in some intense conflict resolution, you know, mediating lately, and it just makes a difference. If you can get there, you're sharing it with others and it does allow them to feel more psychologically safe. And then that opens up the opportunity for actually conversing and solving problems and doing all kinds of great stuff. So we're out of time. So disappointing. <laughs> but I do really appreciate you joining us today and for writing the book, which is Embracing Unrest. Fantastic examples and exercises of how to do this, how to really get in touch with what's going on within you and then learning to, you don't have to like it, right? But learning to be with that discomfort so that you can learn and grow from it. We have a link to the book on our website at amindfulmoment.com. Where can listeners go if they want to learn more about your work? Uh, well, my website, drsandraparker.com or embracingunrest.com. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. And thank you. The pleasure is really mine. <laughs> thank you. Are you ready to embrace unrest? You can find more information about Dr. Sandra Parker at drsandraparker.com and her book 
at embracingunrest.com. You can find a link to the book and to the video of this interview at amindfulmoment.com. My sincere appreciation to Sandra for joining us today. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like the Daily Meditation Podcast, Everything Everywhere, and Movie Therapy. We deeply appreciate your support at patreon.com, A Mindful Moment. Our podcast is now available to view on our YouTube channel. So be sure to follow us there and on Instagram at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written and hosted by Teresa McKee and or Melissa Sims. The Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat, by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll, by Josh Kirsch, Meteorite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions. <laughs>